Good morning, ladies. Buenos días, hermanas. Siempre es un placer estar con ustedes. It's always a joy to be with you. I'm kind of thankful that I'm actually really thankful that there is someone who is translating this in Spanish. Um, because Spanish is hard for me, and then you don't have to suffer through the long time of me saying it in English and then saying it in Spanish. So I'm very thankful for those ladies who do the wonderful um, and hard work of translating. And for you ladies who are here, um, we're just so thankful to be one body all together. <sighs> it, I love EWG. EWG is just special to my heart for so many reasons, and... My husband was laughing and teasing me this week because my phone was just constantly dinging. And he's like, what, what is going on this week? Um, I was laughing. He's like, is there something happening? I was like, no, you know, it's EWG. And he's like, yeah, I, I know that, but your phone is constantly dinging. And it was just sweet to take a second and to be able to think through all of the dings on my phone were sweet messages emails and text messages and phone calls from you ladies and friendships that even ladies that are no longer here at our church anymore and are serving in other places around the world. EWG just has this amazing ability to have friendships based upon scripture, to have a deepness and richness that most relationships don't have. And so I'm thankful for all of you who emailed, all of you who prayed, and then walking in, all of you who told me, I've been praying for you this week um, because I needed it. Because the truth of the matter is that Crystal Grauman woke up this morning and her hands were wet. They were very clammy. I was just praying. I woke up and I was like, how is this possible? They're already clammy. Um, but it's just exciting. I think I'm super excited to be here, but we've also just had... Such an amazing richness um, these past three weeks, listening to our elders from our church, and just the blessing that we heard from Dr. Paul with the land seed and blessing. I don't know how many times he said that, and it's just kind of stuck through. I don't know about you, but I write it on top of all of my lessons just to remember that. And then we had the wonderful Dr. Chow come and teach us the five P's of Genesis. And he walked through the entire book of Genesis in 45 minutes. And I was blown away. I don't know about you girls. And then Dr. Zakevich came and ta taught us about the seven characteristics of God. And I was just humbled. And I was blessed. And I was encouraged. We have an amazing church. And the Lord has blessed us with amazing elders and humble leaders who take time to come and teach us, to work through patiently loving, showing us the way. And it is just, isn't it a joy? Isn't it a joy to be part of a church where our spiritual lives are so cared for um, that men would take time to come and speak to a room full of women? It can be a little intimidating, I think, um, for our elders. But I was just really encouraged. And I was actually really encouraged by something that Dr. Chow said. Um, he said in one of his, I think it was like the third point, he just mentioned really quickly, we all need to be theologians. And it just caused me to pause for a second and really think about this, that we need to study in order to know our creator and to worship him. 
As believers, we have the joy of growing in our love and knowledge of who God is and his character and all that he has decreed in his word. And according to our systematic theology, which is a great big volume about yay big that we can all buy at the bookshop, um, it's it's studying the divine revelation of God. That is what theology is. And not only do we have a great bookstore across the way, we have an amazing library across the parking lot right here. We have articles, journals, commentaries. We don't even have to buy the books. We can get them and just read them. We can study and know who God is. It is our delight as believers, as women, to know theology, to know who our God is, so that we could then go forth and be his representatives and speak and say what he has taught us. So I just want to encourage all of you. I was really convicted by that. I think sometimes I just think, oh, that's for them. That's for our husbands. That's for our pastors and elders. I just sit and receive. No, my friends, we need to do the digging. We need to do the asking of the questions. We need to be reading. We need to be absorbing all that God has given us. And I just have this one little side note. Some of you are probably saying, mm, those great big books are really intimidating, and I don't, I'm not a reader, so I'll just come to church. That's great. Come to church, but we also have grace to you. And grace to you is a wonderful place where you can listen to scripture and sermons by our pastor all day long. I checked, and last week, I wrote it down right here, there are exactly 163 sermons that our pastor has preached on the book of Genesis. That was last week. It probably could have changed and gone up a little bit. But the point is, that is a lot of listening time while you're cooking dinner or sitting in traffic, that we could be learning about our creator and worshiping him in knowledge and then going forth and speaking it with others around us. And that's what we want to be known by, known as people, as women who love God and who speak about him constantly to all who are around. Well, Part of the reason that my hands were clammy this morning was that our pastor has said that Genesis 3 is the most important chapter of the Bible. (laughs) And I get to teach it. (laughs) So I'm really excited, but it was a little nerve-wracking when John MacArthur says this is the most important one. You're like, oh man, I better not get anything wrong. So um, we are very thankful for that. But what he said, and I just want to read it really quickly, he says... Genesis 3 is the most important chapter because it explains absolutely everything about our universe, about our life, and all of us who live in it. It explains everything about why things are the way they are, why we are the way we are, and what God is doing in history, and why he's doing it in terms of salvation. So I'm really excited to jump into this with you, and I pray you are as well. We're going to jump into Genesis 3 and 4 this morning, but before we do, um, would you please pray with me? Oh, Lord, you are good, and you are great, and your mercy and grace is unending. And I'm just so thankful, Father, for your word, how you've given it to us, and how you've allowed us to know more of you and your character, and to be able to see your patience and your love and your justice and your holiness. Lord, you are amazing and a magnificent creator, and we praise you for all that you have done and all that you are doing. Lord, I beg of you that you would allow us to be 
women who love you and know you, who know your word. Lord, I beg of you to keep me from error. Allow us to to learn more of you. And at the end of this talk, to just worship you, Father, to praise your name, that we would look more to you than we would before. And it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Praying calms my heart and hopefully my speed. (laughs) So I'm excited. Our our outline for today is in the back, and I kind of tweaked it a little bit because my husband was like, oh, by making something a plural, you got it incorrect, Um, which is wonderful. I'm so thankful I married a theologian. Um, Our point one is the context of the fall, Genesis 3, 1 through 13. Point two is the curse of the fall, Genesis 3, 14 through 19. And you notice I said curse and not curses. I made that mistake. Um, and finally, the consequence of the fall, Genesis 3, 20 through 4, 25. And there wasn't a mistake. It just sounds better to have them all singular. So that was my hubby reminding me. Um, so the context, the curse, and the consequence, the three C's. Well, friends, we just finished Genesis 2. And Genesis 2 ends, and there is so much hope. There is so much beauty. God has just said that everything he created is very good. Marriage is established between man and woman in the most perfect and beautiful of places. That's the Garden of Eden. And theologians and scholars are not certain how much time passed between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. We're not given that time frame in Scripture. But here are a few things that I thought were interesting, um, and I just wanted to note to you girls. So Genesis 2 ends, and the world is without sin and without evil at the end of chapter 2. And at some point between chapter 2 and chapter 3, Satan falls. Satan falls into sin. How and why Satan falls into sin, having been perfectly created by God, is one of the great mysteries of Scripture. All we know is that in Genesis 2, Satan is created and he's very good. All that God created was very good. And God sovereignly planned to use Satan's sin for good. So that brings us to our first point in chapter 3, the context of the fall. So in the context of the fall, we're immediately introduced to a new character. And the adjective that is used here, I found it to be distinct and interesting and a little bit funny, and it just helped me think for a second. It uses the word crafty as an adjective to describe who this character is. And when I use the word crafty, I'm thinking of someone who likes to make crafts and who has amazing Pinterest boards and their home is really cute and they have fun things for fall. But that is not what we see here in Scripture. Crafty is used in two specific ways in Scripture. There is the positive way, and we see that a lot in the book of Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, crafty can be translated into clever, and Scripture makes us clever. So in the book of Proverbs, it is a good thing. It is a good thing for us to grow in our discerning and understanding, and we're thankful for that. But in Genesis 3, crafty is a very interesting wordplay. Crafty means to be clever and discerning. And the wordplay is interesting because in chapter 2, when it ends, chapter 2, verse 25 says, And the woman and the man and his wife were both naked 
and we're not ashamed. The word naked in Hebrew, the end of that word in Hebrew is the same word that you see when the word crafty in Hebrew. So it uses those two things. In chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, Adam and Eve are innocent and naked. And then when you get to chapter 3, verse 6, Satan, who is clever, crafty, he exploits Eve's innocence in tempting Eve to be clever in, chapter, in verse 6. So in, verse, in chapter 2, she is innocent. And in chapter 3, this drawing, this clever, this, this thing that has now been before her, she's naked. Now in chapter 3, later on, her nakedness will bring her shame. Satan exploits this. Satan is crafty, and he speaks to Eve as a snake. And again, in Scripture, we're not told how or why Satan chose the serpent to speak to Eve. But for some reason, we're also not told why Eve doesn't find this surprising. If a snake were to come and talk to me, I would be really shocked. I would have lots of questions. And we don't see that here in Scripture. Because everything at this point, chapter 2 ends, everything is new Everything is new to Eve, and she's discovering everything, and everything is not only new, everything is just kind of normal and perfect. And so she talks to Satan. So Satan craftily asks Eve the question, did God say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And Eve responds in verse 3 that not only could you not eat of the tree, but they could not touch it or else they would die. So, one more time. The narrative does not tell us everything. And it may not even be all the details that we would love to know. Because I have all sorts of questions that just come running to the mind. But we do know that the Lord has given us everything to life and godliness, like Peter tells us. His divine power has granted us all things pertaining to life and godliness through knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Why does Eve say that we can't touch it? Is it because, you know, she's spoken to God at another time and he told her that? Or is she putting words into God's mouth? We don't know. The narrative doesn't tell us. And I'm really thankful. I tend to sit down and read narrative with my husband and asking all these questions. And he's just so kind and patient. And he listens to my questions. And then he reminds me that we cannot assume that everything that was spoken is recorded. But what is recorded is exactly sufficient and what God wants us to know. And we just studied Acts last year, and we can remember that in Acts, there were huge, long sermons that were presented, and yet they're summarized briefly and shortly in the book of Acts. Was that wrong? No. That is just what God has ordained for us to know and to grow in. So ladies... Let's stick to where we are. I know that my mind starts to ask lots of questions, and my husband is so kind, and he's like, babe, where are we? We're in the Bible. (laughs) And it's just really helpful, because that's my mind. I don't know if that's you girls, but it's really, really helpful to me. So the serpent responds with a lie. He tells her, you will not die. And then he adds to his lie a promise something good that will come to Eve if she believes him. So let's go to the text, please, and let's go ahead and read it. Genesis 3, 1 through 5. Now read it out loud for all of us. It says, 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Knowing good and evil, verse 5. Throughout the New Testament, Satan is referred to as the father of lies, John 8, 44. So Satan lies to the woman. But you kind of ask yourself, like, why, why is it a lie? Isn't that what happened? They ate and, and they kind of died, but it was interesting. Did they know good and evil? Yes. The best of lies, my friends, always have a little bit of truth. It was a lie because they just didn't know good and evil. They became evil. Verse 6 says something happened so quickly that it's it's almost hard to believe. Eve takes the fruit and she eats it, and then she gives it to her husband. And it's like boom, 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 boom. 1 Timothy 2.14 says that Eve was the one deceived, and Adam was not deceived, but sinned more deliberately. And it just happened so quickly. If you look at verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. It's interesting that as a couple, their eyes were both opened after Adam took the bite. It was at that moment that both of them thought that their ways were better than God's. And this brings the concept of headship. What does that mean? That's a weird big term. Well, God created Adam first, and then God created Eve as a helpmate for Adam. The role of submission for woman was established way before the fall. That was in Genesis 2. The role of the head of the family was given to God, was given to Adam by God in Genesis 2. And the implication is that if Eve had just sinned, the human race wouldn't have fallen. It's when Adam bit that everything changed. Sin entered the world. And our pastor, he defines sin as any personal lack of conformity to the moral character of God or the law of God. Then sin is a disposition of the heart. It's a bent that we now have. It thinks evil, it speaks evil, it acts evil, and this is key, it omits good. This is original sin. Because of Adam's one sin, it affected all of us. Our systematic theology defines sin as the effect of the sin of Adam on those united to him, affecting our behavior independent of and prior to any action of our own. Original sin speaks of both imputed guilt and the inherited corruption of Adam's sin to all human persons apart from Jesus. In the moment that Adam sinned, you and I inherited a sin nature and we were condemned to hell. Verse 7, their eyes are opened. Adam and Eve realize that they are naked and they cover themselves. And this is a new understanding that Adam and Eve have learned. 
They hid themselves from the presence of God. But why had they not done that before? The fall led them into knowing that they had done evil. Their conscience for the first time was pricked. It was alerting them of sin. But God, God is just so gracious. God's gracious response to their hiding just causes me to marvel at his mercy and his patience with sinners, their disobedience. God gives them an opportunity to repent and to confess their sin. God graciously asks them questions, hoping that they are going to repent, that they're going to confess their sin. I don't know about you guys, but have you ever seen a child? I'm going to use my son as an illustration because Abby's here. Um, (laughs) It's happened. You tell him or them they can't eat a cookie and you walk into the kitchen two seconds later and they're just standing there with their cheeks really big and crumbs all around them. And you ask them, what happened? What, What did you do, my love? And they like, don't know exactly how to speak immediately because they're trying to swallow the sin that they just deliciously enjoyed. And we kind of get a little glimpse of that right here. God is asking them questions, giving them the opportunity to confess, to repent. Will Adam and Eve repent? We don't know yet in Genesis chapter 3. And in verses 12 and 13, we're going to see that they do take the first step in repentance. The first step of repentance, my friends, is confessing our sin. I ate. I confess. I did it. So now we're wondering, what's God going to do? God is holy. God is just. He gave them an instruction and they disobeyed. Is God going to kill them right then and there? They deserve that. That's what God holiness demands. No. In one sentence, God is so kind and so loving. He gives them hope that he, the sovereign God, has already ordained for them a savior. And that brings us to our second point, the curse of the fall. Genesis 3, 14 through 21. The curse of the fall was immediate and vast. And as God begins to justly explain how not just mankind will be affected, but the serpent and all animals and creation will be changed forevermore. I just want to be really clear on this point. And this is why I had to change curses to curse. God does not curse his children. God does not curse his children. But if we look at the curses, we look at the curse in chapter 3, we can see that there were consequences, and he spoke directly. He spoke a curse to Satan, then he speaks to Eve, and then he speaks to Adam. And we're going to go through that together. So let's begin with Satan, and that would be in verse 14. If you would go with me, please. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. 
He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God speaks directly to the serpent, to the physical form of the serpent. They will, from that day on, forever be on their belly and be eating dust. God makes it abundantly clear that because of the lies and deception that were spewed from the serpent's mouth, snakes will be cursed more than any other animal on land. Now, God does not simply curse the physical form that Satan had taken during that time. He also curses Satan directly and promises that he will be destroyed in the future. And that brings us to Genesis 3.15. So much hope. Genesis 3.15 is referred to oftentimes as the gospel according to Genesis. Remember, in this verse right here, this is a curse to Satan. And it's a curse to Satan. And at the same time, my friends, it holds this wonderful hope for us as believers. Because it's here in this verse for the first time in the scripture that we're seeing God's plan of redemption for his image bearers. We get a glimpse of the Messiah, the chosen one who will redeem us. Verse 15 speaks to Satan and yet shows that God is glorious in his wisdom. He's condemning Satan and he gives his children hope. God uses the term enmity. And this is a deep-rooted hatred This is a foretelling of the pain and the suffering that will happen, as we see it says, you and the woman and your offspring and her offspring. This is saying more than just humans and snakes, they're not going to get along. This is deep. Oh, we know that's true. I do not prefer snakes. I don't know about you. Um, But offspring, offspring is a term that we see here in scripture. And it's also in Hebrew, as I read from a dictionary, and then verified with my husband. Um, it is, means seed. Seed. Therefore, it deals with the seed, any descendant, any child, grandchild, great-grandchild, great-great-grandchild of the offspring. So it sets up this war. We're going to see this war between her offspring and his offspring, the descendants of Eve and Satan. And the promise is that ultimately, Eve's seed will win. Eve's descendant will crush Satan's head. Well, we have the entire word of God, and so we are assured in the New Testament how exactly that's going to end. But I want us to look just from the perspective of Genesis 3 right here. Eve's sin made her an enemy of God. And in a sense, in that moment, Eve's actions show that she's an agent of Satan till the moment that she repents and trusts in the Messiah. And that's just like us, till the moment we repent and trust in the Messiah. There are two categories of people, and we even see that here in Genesis 3. Those are people who believe in God and people who hate God and follow Satan. And we see that here in Genesis 3.15. The serpent crusher, as we're going to call him, the offspring of Eve, he will experience pain and suffering. Satan will bruise his heel. But ultimately, my friends, we can rejoice. Satan will lose. He will crush Satan. And we have the assurance that he refers to Jesus. He is the Messiah. 
Jesus' heel was bruised on the cross. But Jesus Christ, my friends, he conquered sin. He took the punishment. He took the wrath through his sacrificial death. Jesus Christ right now is sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Satan is, will be destroyed, Hebrews 2.14 tells us. We have no reason, my friends, if we are followers of God, to fear Satan. God, in his infinite mercy, then turns to Eve. He turns to Eve and speaks directly to her. Remember, this is happening all super quickly in the text. We see that he speaks to Eve, he speaks to serpent, and then he speaks to Eve. So we can assume that Eve is listening to what has been spoken to. He speaks to her, and he says, uh, "Let's go to it." To the woman, he said, "I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children." Your desire shall be contrary to your husband's, but he shall rule over you. It sounds painful, but God is gracious to Eve in this. God tells her, yes, that she will have pain in childbirth. As she joyously awaits the birth of a child with hope that he will be the seed that will crush serpent. Eve's desire will be for her husband. Lord willing, that will produce children, but it will bring pain as well. My friends, I just want to make one little clear point right here. As I said before, the roles of men and women were established before the fall. God created Adam. God created Eve. That is perfect. Eve is a helpmate. God said it was perfect, and everything he created was perfect in Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, we see submission. That is where submission was started. And in Genesis 3, when God says her desire will be for her husband, submission, my friends, contrary to our society today, is not a result of the fall. Submission is not a result of the fall. But because God tells Eve that her relationship will have strife, Sinfully, we like to think that then that is, oh, submission is really, it's, it happened because of sin. That's not true. Eve decided to take the fruit and eat it. She considered her ways better than God's. And that, my friends, is what we call pride. And pride is a desire to dominate. I think I'm better. I think my ways are better. And that happens sadly in marriages. God's judgment on Adam in verse 17 is with the punch to the stomach for wives. I read it and I started crying. So I'm going to read it to you all. And to Adam, he said, this is in verse 16. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat of the plant of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. My friends, this exhortation, this is directed towards Adam, but it just caused me to weep. Let's read that line again. Because you listened to the voice of your wife. 
Ladies, our counsel to our husbands, does it point them to God? And this isn't just for, for married people. This is for all ladies in our church. This is for all Bible-believing ladies. Does the counsel we give to others, does it point them to God? My friends, let us consider how we give our counsel. God says, because you have listened to your wife, God reminds Adam that he, the God of creation, had given him a clear instruction, but Adam, he chose to do the opposite. He chose to eat. He chose to not obey God. So the ground is cursed. The ground is going to be hard, and his work is going to be hard for the rest of his life. It's not that work is bad. The ground is hard, and this is the curse. Everything is changing now. Adam was created by God from dust, and death will now follow. He is going to return to the ground, and he is going to die. But God is gracious. He does not leave Adam in the state like that. He allows him to experience the hope. Adam. Adam graciously hears what God is speaking to him. And I'm sure we can see Adam's gracious response as he is taking all of this in. Adam's listening to what is happening. And Adam graciously turns to his wife. And he calls her Eve. And my friends, right there, this is when we see their repentance. They're choosing to believe the truth of what God has spoken to them. That God will crush Satan. There will be a Messiah. I know about you, but in that moment, I I could almost see the tears in Adam's eyes as he turns and looks to his wife and calls her Eve. They are believing in the promises of God. They are believing what God is saying. They are showing that what they didn't believe earlier, they now believe. They see that God is great and good, and they want to follow him. Verse 21 gives us a glimpse of what is to come for mankind. A sacrifice will have to be made to reconcile us to God. And God is gracious yet again to Adam and Eve and provides for them clothing. God kills an animal. He sheds blood. He provides a covering for the people. And it's ultimately, it's a little glimpse of what we're going to see later on in Scripture. But right here in Genesis 3, it is God's gracious covering of his people. And even the sacrifice that will have to be made of the one who is going to crush Satan. God will provide a substitute. There will be consequences, but God has sovereignly planned to bring glory to himself and to redeem his children. Praise the Lord. But that does bring us to our final point, the consequences of the fall. Well, the first one is a joyous thing in this moment. It is the fact that there is salvation. That's what we saw in verses 20 and 21. There is salvation. God would provide a substitute through the Messiah. And that informs us that sin, if forgiven, leaves us better than if we had never sinned at all. Have you, I just, that just blew my mind as I was studying. That should give us hope. God is going to make us better 
than Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2. They were innocent in Genesis chapter 2, but they also were able to sin. When God, when Christ, who is righteous, he is in heaven and he's not able to sin and we will be made like him. We will be in heaven rejoicing and not able to sin. We will worship him wholly. Praise the Lord, my friends. It is just such sweet truth. The second consequence that we do see is death. We know that we have died spiritually. We are sinners. But Adam and Eve are also kicked out of the garden in verses 22 and 24. They have to die physically. But God is gracious even in this. God is gracious in this, in that he allowing them to die so that they could be resurrected to a better body, to a glorious body. God uses this bad thing for good. The third consequence is sin, and we see that in chapter 4. Chapter 4 is a whirlwind. So much happens in Genesis chapter 4. One of the first things we see, though, is that Adam and Eve have a baby. They have a baby. And Eve, from what we can see, she thinks that Cain is going to be the Messiah. She is remembering Genesis 3.15. She is praying. Oh, I shouldn't say that. Let's go back to my notes. Let me not go off flip. (laughs) Let's stick to this. As I was studying this, it happened to be Noah's birthday. And Noah's our first little guy. And I was just remembering the moment that the doctor handed me this cute, chubby little face. And this perfect little face, and I'm sure that every mom here has thought that when the doctor hands you your baby, all you see is this beautiful little face and your heart melts, your heart rejoices. And I can only imagine what Eve is feeling and thinking in that moment. And then she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Not only the love that she has for this child, but the hope that she has that this child, this child will be the one that will redeem them. (sighs) Turns out that that's not so. Cain was born like his parents. Cain has a sinful nature. Eve doesn't just have one son, she has two. She has Abel. Cain and Abel, we both learn in Genesis chapter 4 that they offer sacrifices God accepts Abel's, and he doesn't accept Cain. And Cain, it's interesting the comparison. I want us to think about this. Cain gets so angry. Cain gets so angry at God that his anger leads him to death. God gives him a chance to confess. God asks him a question. And Cain, Cain's response is insolent. It is, I, wow. He's speaking to God of the universe. Who, am I my brother's keeper? If we're comparing how Adam and Eve responded to the questions and we're comparing to how Cain responded, my friends, that is what sin does to us. It blinds us. Cain was not only a sinner, but he actually represents all unbelievers, Satan's offspring. 
Everything goes from bad to worse so quickly. By the end of chapter 4, by the end of chapter 4, Lamech is singing. He is singing. So this is something you're proud of. You're singing. He's singing about killing a young man and boasting about it to his two wives. We've gone in one generation from living in the Garden of Eden and worshiping God in spirit and truth to a generation later singing about killing. So quickly, all is not lost. Adam and Eve have another offspring in Genesis 4.25, and that's Seth. God establishes a godly line in Seth, and Seth and his son Enosh, they call upon the name of the Lord. They both seek to love God and to have a godly generation. Chapter 4 does not end in horror. Chapter 4 ends in hope. We have hope that though all was all who are, con- are damned in Adam, we all fell in Adam. God is gracious. Eve would have another offspring, and that would lead to Christ. And in Christ, we are all made alive, my friends. Romans 5.19 says, For as by one man's disobedience they were many made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And I don't, I don't know about you girls, but I've often just sometimes wondered, what would have happened? What would have happened if Adam actually responded in a godly way? What would that have looked like? And my friends, we don't have to wonder. We don't have to wonder because we get to see that in the second Adam in Jesus Christ. He took it. He killed the Satan. He offers his own life. That is what the perfect Adam has done for us. And now we have life through Jesus Christ. God is gracious and merciful and has provided for us hope and redemption. My friends, if you do not believe, if you do not have your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I would encourage you, please speak to your small group leader. Speak to one of us today. We would love to talk to you. We would love to encourage you. My friends, we have this good news. Jesus Christ came. Jesus Christ is given us life, and we can worship him in spirit and truth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your son. We thank you for the gift that we do not deserve in his obedience. And we thank you that you have given us life if we repent and turn to you. Lord, we thank you so much for your word and ask that you would allow us to learn it so that we could speak it continually to all who are around. And it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.